Around 1,137,000 Americans died due to COVID-19 based on the World Health Organization's latest figures. But within that figure, there's another tragic number. An estimated 200,000 of those deaths were unvaccinated people who died when a vaccine was freely available in the US. That figure echoes through the pages of the new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. And it weighs heavily on its author, Dr. Peter J. Hotez. Peter's a leading vaccine scientist in the US, the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. He also helped lead the teams who developed COVID vaccines that have reached 100 million people in India and Indonesia. Peter's also very much at the front line of communicating about misinformation on science. Peter's become the self-described public enemy number one of anti-vaccine groups since his 2018 book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. My journey as a vaccine scientist, paediatrician and autism dad. His advocacy has won him many admirers, but it's also brought him vitriol, death threats and stalkers, an experience that's made him fearful for the future of America and its scientific institutions. Dr. Peter J. Hotez, welcome to RN. Oh, thank you, and uh, great introduction, even though a bit disturbing, but I uh, appreciate the detail. Peter, could you speak to us about that projected figure of 200,000 unvaccinated people in America dying due to COVID-19, and also some of the changing dynamics and demographics within that figure? Yeah, it's based on about three, three different estimates, including my own. Uh, but others based at the Kaiser Family Foundation, based by Charles Gabba, the health analyst, as well as a group out of Harvard School of Public Health. And it happened during our Delta and BA1 Omicron waves in the last half of 2021, early 22, after COVID vaccines were freely and widely available, large numbers of Americans refused to take a COVID vaccine and unnecessarily lost their lives at a time when the vaccines were more than 90% protective, for instance, against the Delta wave. And it happened in specific areas of the country, mostly in conservative, what we sometimes call red states, Republican majority states like where I am in Texas, but also Louisiana, Mississippi, and some of the Mountain West states. And it's very hard to talk about because, you know, of our commitment to political neutrality, physicians and scientists, we don't like to talk about red and blue and, and Democrats and conservatives, but the numbers are so clearly uh, along a partisan divide, these individuals were victims of a predatory anti-vaccine movement that had political leanings and political motivation. And the numbers are not small. I mean, we're looking at 40,000 Texans who needlessly died in my state uh, during the Delta BA1 waves because they refused COVID vaccines, and around 200,000 altogether. So we're looking at what's become now a lethal societal force the anti-vaccine movement and anti-science predation. And within those numbers, is it true that earlier on the the most defining factors for vaccine hesitancy were other social factors, but it's really become more partisan as time's gone by? Well, that's right. And it didn't start out that way. You know, I'd originally been tracking this movement of, of false claims that vaccines cause autism and as you rightly point out, that's how I got involved, because I have a daughter with autism who's now an adult and intellectual disabilities and wrote the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, which gave me a front seat to this, but watched 
really in horror over the last few years as it became more of a political movement linked to far-right uh, extremism. And it's, you know, not that we care about people's political views, but somehow we have to uncouple the anti-vaccine, anti-science from it because it's killing so many Americans. As I mentioned, the loss of life is uh, staggering. And so how we bring that back is, is really a central question now. Mm. Could you tell us what the term anti-science aggression means and why that's your preferred term in the book for the phenomenon you're describing? Yeah, it refers to um, deliberately twisting the science for for political gain. And we saw this beginning around the summer of 2021 as the Delta wave was unfolding and the rhetoric at the Conference of Conservatives known as the CPAC Conference in Dallas uh, was first they'll vaccinate you and then they'll take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, it was widely accepted. And and that Conference of Conservatives, even though it's not really conservative as such, not in the classic sense, brought on many lead anti-vaccine activists. And and then there was the pile-on. The pile-on came from conservative members, far-right members of the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress, of the House Freedom Caucus, some U.S. senators. And then, notably, and I document this from two sources, both Media Matters, a watchdog group, and a research university in Switzerland, uh, amplified nightly during that Delta wave in the last half of 2021 by Fox News, by the nighttime Fox News anchors and some of the conservative podcasters. So what happened? People went down that rabbit hole and listening to elected leaders from the extreme right, watching Fox News every night and made a decision not to get vaccinated as a result. On RN, we're speaking with Dr. Peter J. Hotez, author of the new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. And Peter, I wonder if I could ask you to sort of unpack a couple of observations you make in the book. And on the one hand, you say that the turn against biomedical science in America happened, quote, suddenly, defiantly and without precedent. But you also sort of pick up the historical roots of what you describe as the health freedom movement. Could you speak to us about those two aspects, the currents of anti-science that are as old as, I suppose, science itself, but also what the genuinely new dangers are? Yeah, I think the the big game changer, although there were these elements of health, what was sometimes called health freedom going back to colonial times in the United States and more recently in the 1950s and the 1960s around Laetrile, an anti-cancer drug, and there was a, a movement not to let the federal government regulate it. This was so unprecedented in which an anti-science, anti-vaccine movement was full-on adopted by an extreme element of a major political party. And that's what gave it such power and clout and caused so much uh, destruction because this was embraced at the highest levels of the U.S. Senate and House and some governors. And then that amplification, not only on social media, but but the Fox News Network, which uh, caused uh, so much devastation. And 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 the numbers are, are truly extraordinary and, and I think well-documented. But now we're seeing something else, which is quite interesting. And in the past, you know, if parents weren't vaccinating their kids and there was an outbreak of, say, measles or pertussis, whooping cough in the communities, there was always a self-correcting mechanism. Parents would see children going into the hospital, word would get out, and they would start vaccinating their kids. It was not a correction or self-correction mechanism. 
We're not seeing that now. You know, even after 200,000 Americans needlessly perished, there's almost a doubling down um, from those same groups and trying to awkwardly claim that it was the vaccines that killed Americans, which is nonsense, um, or that the scientists invented the virus in the first place, which is equally nonsense. So it's this attempt now at revisionist history. And this is playing out now and again, once again, in the Congress. And and it means that it's targeting not only the science, but the scientists, vilifying them and portraying them as public enemies or enemies of the state. We really haven't done that in modern times in the United States. And and it's so dangerous because the U.S., very much like Australia, is, is a, our nation, we're both nations built on the strength of our research universities and institutions. And so... For that attack to occur, you know, also means to me that there's really an attack on American security as well. And you outline in the book the organisations that are well-funded and highly aggressive that have sort of become uh, the fore of some of these attacks. But you also write, Peter, about uh, backing from professional scientific colleagues lacking. Could you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, one of the concerns I have is we haven't been hearing from our scientific societies, from our university and college presidents, like I would have expected to be backing the scientific community. And, and you know, I understand at some level why that is. First of all, they don't want to get beat up like they see I get beat up or my colleagues get beat up. And But also, I think it's this commitment to political neutrality that we're not supposed to discuss political divides or red and blue states or Republicans and Democrats. And, and I understand that at some level, but the attacks on science are so clearly on a partisan divide, causing so much loss of life. At some point, to paraphrase Desmond Tutu or Elie Wiesel, neutrality favors the aggressor or the tormentor. And I think we were kind of reaching that point. So we have to defend not only the science, but the scientists. And I'm still hopeful that will be forthcoming. Uh, but right now we're living in very dark times in this country. And I suspect, given the political nature of it, that this will continue or perhaps even worsen as we head towards the 2024 election. And you've said there, Peter, in this country, I wonder if you could give us your reflections on to what extent it's a uniquely American problem or what you see of these trends uh, moving more broadly around the world. Well, that's a great question. You know, the U.S. is pretty good at exporting its music and exporting its films. And, and unfortunately, I think we are exporting some of this stuff. And, you know, you're seeing it somewhat with the, and I talk about the book, The Freedom Convoys that we've seen in Canada, and document how it was egged on by members, some of the same members of the U.S. Congress and Fox News, seeing it in Europe, um, but now even seeing it in low- and middle-income countries, some of that same U.S.-style rhetoric on the African continent and elsewhere in Asia and Latin America, and also adopted by authoritarian-like regimes, such as Bolsonaro in Brazil or Viktor Orban in Hungary and and elsewhere. So I I worry that this has now become a a new signature of authoritarianism uh, in the modern world. But there is a historical precedent, which we saw during the time of Stalin in the 1930s, how he also targeted scientists as a form of political control. And I write about some similarities between those regimes as well. You argue in the book that there's a moral imperative to counter anti-science aggression. I wonder, do you see a tension between publicly contesting and resisting anti-scientific views in the mass media on the one hand, and techniques of individual persuasion on people who think that way and trying to help them see things differently? 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I see those who refused vaccines. In some ways, they're, they're victims of this predatory movement. The, uh, there's one survey that needs to be repeated done by the Kaiser Family Foundation that looks at those refusing vaccines. And one of the common features is uh, low educational attainment. So that really speaks to me that these individuals became victims of this very aggressive movement. I suppose what I'm wondering is you've dealt with this at the the broad level, you know, in mass media, but then also with individual patients. Do you see a difference in the techniques that work on a person-to-person level uh, compared to the, uh, the fight to sort of contest the ground in mass media and social media? Well, you know, in the past and uh, back when I did pediatrics and, and I don't any longer, when I, you know, was seeing patients and talking to parents and as a pediatrician, you can have a discussion with parents and get them to vaccinate their kid. And sometimes took more time than others. But now you're seeing this kind of knee digging in where people have unfortunately tied their political identity to not getting vaccinated. And that's very disturbing as well. So the worry is that this anti-vaccine movement could accelerate and now not only stop at COVID vaccines, but go on to other pediatric vaccines, the typical childhood immunizations that we do. And as I mentioned, extend globally as well. You write in the book at one point, you just stopped caring about how your emotions were understood. And it's certainly the case that you've been emotional in your advocacy for rational science. Could you speak to us a little bit about that on a personal level? But also, do you think that's one of the factors that maybe makes other scientists reticent about speaking out publicly because uh, it can be emotion that sways the public arguments? Well, you know... Forty years ago, I did my MD and PhD in New York at Rockefeller University in Cornell um, to become a vaccine scientist. I thought that was the highest expression of science for humanitarian pursuits. And the vaccines that I started way back then are in clinical trials. And then, as you mentioned, we made two COVID vaccines for low and middle income countries, reaching 100 million people. That was always part of the plan. I think the unplanned part was uh, having to defend vaccines. But now I see that as part and parcel of my role as a vaccine scientist, not only developing vaccines, but countering anti-vaccine movements and not something I anticipated doing. But, you know, I have a voice and and I have now a track record of doing this. And part of it, I feel, if I don't do it, who does? And, uh, And I do find it meaningful, although it does get scary at times. Could you speak to us a little bit about that? I mean, how scary has it got for you? Well, it's gotten pretty aggressive, you know, particularly, you know, when you have now the far right attacking you. They play hardball, as we say, using the baseball analogy. You know, you have Steve Bannon publicly declaring me a criminal, which is absolutely bizarre. Or now you have the Proud Boys, which is a far right group marching in anti-vaccine rallies. So it has taken this very dark turn. And, you know, the emails I get, the Army of Patriots is coming to hunt me down, which annoys me because I say, look, the scientists are the patriots, not these guys, the true patriots. And then the physical stalkings, you know, in my home and when I go to various venues to speak, uh, for instance, I'm in Chicago uh, today, um, I'll be speaking American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene and have to ask the conference host to beef up security uh, because I'm there and it's very unpleasant. But, you know, this is our our new reality. 
Peter, in the book, you call for an entity that resembles the Southern Poverty Law Centre, but for biomedical scientists. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more for an Australian audience, what sort of centre you're looking for? And has there been much interest in the concept in response to the book? Well, you know, given the fact that the scientists are under attack and the, many of the societies are reluctant to weigh in because of the political nature of the attacks, you know, I asked the question in the book, should we be prepared to create a new entity uh, for the protection of scientists? And it's based on the fact that the climate scientists have dealt with something similar over the last decade, and they've launched a climate science defense fund, um, particularly when legal protections are needed. Um, and and the question then becomes, should we be doing something similar for biomedical scientists and looking to different models for that? And now we're in discussions with a number of like-minded colleagues to uh, and, and potential uh, philanthropies to see if that's something that, that has legs and could be something that we can uh, put in place. Dr. Peter J. Hotez, thanks so much for speaking with us on RN. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, I know it, it's a it's a dark topic. The book was not fun to write, but I, I felt it's important. And we'll see where this goes. At this point, you know, I don't see any immediate relief. Uh, the hope is that this will autocorrect, but I, I can't say that right now. And my other hope is this doesn't contaminate other countries, including Australia, but we'll see where it goes. The book is called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. It's not exactly a relaxing read, but certainly a bracing and compelling one. Peter Hotez, thank you once again. Thank you so much. And Peter's the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and co-director of the Texas Children's Centre for Vaccine Development, as well as the author of The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.